welcome to The Near Memo, a weekly conversation about search, social, and commerce. What happened, why it matters, and the implications for local. All right, welcome back, everybody. It's Friday, August 6th, episode 27 of The Near Memo. As always, I'm Greg, and I'm here with Mike and David. We're going to talk about uh, everything in the world of local search, commerce, and so on, uh, or not everything, but things that we think are important this week. And SMB. And, and SMB. Thank you. And that's a, that's a, a big feature of uh, this week's discussion. Um, and I'm going to kick it off with uh, with two two items tied to Yelp. Um, the first, well, before I begin, do either of you want to say anything? No? Okay. Thanks for joining us yet again. Yet again. You, All right. Okay. Um, so Yelp this week uh, announced its Q2 revenues, and uh, they announced a surprise profit. Uh, their stock jumped 14%. They grew revenue uh, after hours in the uh, the other day, and they grew revenue, I think, 52%. So that's 52% over 2020, right? Yes. Which I think is a critical comparison because it's not a very... Right. It's a, not, it's a, an not a high comparison. bar. Not it's a not high, high bar. bar. That's right. Yes. Okay. And um, and then they also introduced two new business attributes for their profiles. One was um, proof of vaccination required for admission and uh, all staff vaccinated, which um, is, is, uh, is, I think, interesting. I think Google's going to mimic that probably because I think now with the Delta variant and the sort of seriousness of that and how contagious it is, I think it's And with be- all these businesses uh, going in that direction, Google... Yeah. Facebook, all agreeing that people need to be vaccinated to come back on site. Right. I think the confusing thing, though, is that, and, and this is why it's valuable as a as a as a profile attribute, is that it's it you know depending on where you are in the country and depending on what business category you're in, the rules are going to be very different. There's no uniformity. Um, you know, so in Florida, there are going to be no no masks, no vaccine requirements. California, New York, and elsewhere. You know, vaccine rules will be more prevalent, and so it's going to be really valuable to have this information. What were you going to say, Mike? Well, just that from a logical point of view, every business needs to get to that point where they're actually requiring vaccines, because the businesses are again caught in the middle here. If they don't have rigorous enough standards, and it leads to a super spreader event amongst their customers or their employees, the business is going to take it on the chin. Maybe not legally but certainly socially and financially. And I think that the business, you know, from a business case point of view only, let's leave out the moral issues. A business needs to get to this point. And I think it's good that all these major innovative American businesses have done that. Disney, Netflix, even Walmart has done it, along with Google and Facebook and a number of others, more coming every day. In fact, CNN fired three employees who violated the all vaccinated in the office rule. And I think that that's going to become the norm in most businesses that don't want to get caught flat-footed from a PR point of view. Well, except in jurisdictions where everybody is, you know, does, is in certain places where people are hostile to vaccines. Well, I don't, you know, my research would indicate that the most that these people, that the most it's 20% are hostile. That still leaves 80% that aren't, right? So, or you know, there's some people who are undecided, but they're not hostile to a vaccine or a safe, high hygienic protocol. 
It's like well, there's I, there's a difference between masks required for admission and vaccine proof required for admission, right? Right. Which well, is I'm talking much, about employees, and certainly when you yeah, get to I'm, the question of customers, it's a more nuanced question. I think I think for employees, it's a very easy call, right? If you're going to bring people into an indoor environment in these circumstances, you right. need to have you need to be vaccinated. You I think that's done a, everything you could to maximize your hygiene. Right. And that's and that's and that's legally permissible. Courts have ruled on it. There's no ambiguity there. Where it becomes a much harder question, I think, is for the for the business owner to require this and enforce this. In New York, there are going to be potential fines for businesses that fail in the requisite categories to enforce this or are lax in their enforcement. So non non compliance or or lax enforcement will result in fines. But in New York City. In New York, yes. But the rest of New York State, our hospital proclaimed how successful they were because 72% of their staff were vaccinated. I looked at that news report and thought one more than one out of four of their staff workers are not vaccinated. The hospital becomes a super spreader event themselves. In yes. Delta, well, right? and that's, and that's going to happen with the schools opening. I mean, I'm, I'm, I have a 16 year old who's going back to high school next week and they're going to have masks, but there's no way they're going to prevent the spread of the given the sort of contagiousness of the Delta variant, there's right. absolutely no way that that's going to not sort of tear through that, those, right. those environments. And then they interviewed our local mayor and he was concerned that if New York state made it mandatory, it would be an unfunded mandate. And I'm thinking death by COVID is an unfunded mandate. The feds are paying for COVID vaccines. COVID vaccination of employees is not an unfunded mandate. And then the mayor in the next city over said, Oh, I've never even asked our employees. It's against HIPAA. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, I live right in the third world, the middle of a third world country. Well, OK. All right. <laughs> back to the Yelp report. Back yes, to the Yelp back report. To, back so I'm glad, the, they, I'm glad uh, that you were, put that attribute in place. And I agree with you that Google will as well. Yeah. So so the so the attribute is the attribute is helpful from the standpoint that there's going to be a lot of confusion. And secondly, some people will use this as a way to determine who to patronize. And Absolutely. and so I, I think, think that's it's true. Yeah. So I think it's a really valuable um, I think it's a really valuable thing. Now, the, I, the, I was actually going to highlight a couple of things from the uh, earnings report, though, if, if I could. Well, just... let's let. OK, so l let me just finish out the, the, okay. the vaccine attribute and then we can go to earnings. Um, so one of the things that comes with with any kind of public covid display is review bombing. Right. Because it's such a hot, hot button issue. And Yelp said that they've experienced something like 600 percent increase in sort of dubious reviews built, you know, tied to ideological issues like, you know, masks and, and vaccination. And they said that they've removed 4,500 reviews. I don't remember what period of time this was uh, as a result of that. Now, what's interesting to me is that, you know, I mean, just the phenomenon of review bombing becomes a big problem, but the, that they've only removed 4,500 reviews suggests that the review volume is in the aggregate is pretty low. Right. Because, you know, I mean, it would be forty five thousand or four million five hundred thousand if it were Google, I think. Right. We will know that as soon as they release their 10Q for the quarter. I've been tracking their review volume for the last eight years and it's been generally it's it, the rate of growth has been decreasing. It's been uh, so. But we'll see. We don't know yet. They didn't release that in their conversations yesterday. Well, David, why don't we go to, I mean, I could say some things editorially about quantity versus quality, but let's go to you, David. Sure. So I've, there were a couple of interesting things in their report, um, one of which is they seem to be 
diversifying revenue away from restaurants and retail, which my first thought looking at these numbers was, oh, yeah, of course, retail spending's, you know, off the charts in Q2 because everybody's going back, as we talked about, I think, last week on the near memo. Um, but Yelp seems to be diversifying into into more and more categories, which is which is good for them uh, as a business. They refer uh, to it as services, though. What, what does that mean? Does that mean lawyers and doctors? Could be or home services. Home, home, or, home services yeah. is one of their big categories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and then the other thing was, it seemed like they were growing their uh, growing the share of revenue from national brands, which I think is a is, has always been a better, more viable uh, path for them in terms of customers who don't necessarily hate Yelp right off the bat, uh, which most small businesses do. So I think it, you know, in some ways, yes, enterprise sales are a lot harder, but it seems like for Yelp, it might actually be an easier path um, to grow revenue, and they seem to be uh, somewhat successful. Um, at doing that, the third thing I don't have an explanation for, but it seems like they have uh, de- decreased the cost per click uh, or cost per action or whatever their metrics are on on ads, um, but have actually increased the the revenues from those ads. So that also tells me that maybe they're lowering their minimum spend um, uh, for SMBs or that they're they're cutting amazing deals with these national brands to get more of them on board, either one of which I would fully support uh, having worked with a couple of on the SMB side anyway, where the minimums just did not make any sense relative to the declining traffic to Yelp, as Mike has been pointing out. So, Right. Yeah, they they had a 40% increase in paying advertising locations, which is a pretty significant increase. And the other point there, David, back to your revenue diversification was the increased revenue from self-serve, which I think is in your, in the SMB category. Again, if an SMB self serves in that, they're less likely to be pissed at some salesman that hard sold them. Yeah. And I, I wonder right. what that, what that means. Is that just ads or does that include some of their paid products that are not ads? Correct. Don't know. So, okay. So I think, um, Mike, you were, no, we're growing to you at the end. So, David, you're up with the uh, recent uh, S&B survey about hiring. Yeah, I'm on the uh, as I'm a recipient of the Breeden newsletter, which I think is an excellent newsletter uh, for those of you who have not yet subscribed. Um, they do a lot of market research among small businesses. Um, so surveying small businesses uh, and interviewing small businesses to see what they think about various uh, mostly SaaS uh, sort of data points. Um, the research they came out with this week was at what company size does an SMB hire a particular role? So, for example, head of HR, how large are you? What percentage of businesses at X size actually have a head of HR or a head of sales or a head of marketing or a director of IT? Those kinds of roles. And it's a really interesting graphic. I think regardless of what um what your product is, uh, there as a as someone who is selling to small businesses, if that's what you do, as as I do at Demand Science, um, it's a really interesting segmentation assistant uh, in terms of who what customers you should be targeting. So for us at Demand Science, um, I'm sort of helping lead one of our our small business product divisions. Um, we definitely want to target SMBs that have at least one sales or marketing uh, employee, and so. This, this research was really helpful to, to me anyway to say, man, if, if a business has fewer than 20 employees, they're incredibly unlikely to have one of those people. We should exclude them from ad campaign, you know, audience, uh, audience targeting or uh, cold email outreach or, or those kinds of things. It's a really uh, helpful 
segmentation tool for us. The flip side is if you're an agency uh, that is, you know, delivering sort of soup to nuts marketing packages, maybe you actually don't go after businesses that have a full-time marketer, in which case you want to look at that sweet spot of businesses in that sort of 10 to 19 range where you know they've probably got, you know, somewhere north of a million dollars in revenue, $2 million in revenue, but they don't have somebody who's actively doing marketing as their full-time job. That might be your best fit um, as an agency. So I just thought that research was really interesting. Um, and there's going to be a webinar coming up this coming week. If you want to learn more about it, I'm going to try to attend if I've got time. So. Yeah, I think they also said, I agree. It was interesting. I think they also were talking about how larger, uh, small businesses, which I think extend into the up to 500, 499 headcount at the high end, um, consistent with the SBA definition. I think they were saying that those those larger businesses tended to have consultants, outside consultants that they relied upon in addition to these internal roles, which was interesting. And then, you know, I was surprised to, to find out how much enterprises rely on managed services very often, which was kind of a little counterintuitive, but nonetheless. Uh, and then at the, um, uh, the, 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 Lower end, I'm sorry, I lost the point there for a second. The lower end businesses, the very small SMBs were relying on vendors very heavily. That was another one of the points is that they, they look to vendors to provide the sort of guidance and, um, you know, direction, advice that that you'd typically get from a head of marketing internally or maybe from an outside consultant. So that that was also kind of interesting. I think most vendors don't do a very good job giving that guidance because they're biased toward their own, their own products, obviously. But, um, or they don't have a sales model that really supports right in either way. I mean, right. It creates unintended bias even. They're right. Going to be good at it. Right. So it's a good, it's a good piece of research. And, um, you know, I think they, they also found that it was that the, um, you know, there wasn't clear, there weren't clear lines of demarcation, you know, everybody with a hundred or more employees has a head of HR, you know, there were, there were sort of, there was some variation, but, um, and uh, the, the, one of the takeaways was that it was surprising how businesses of a larger size still didn't have certain roles that you would expect to have. So that, that's kind of, that's kind of an interesting aspect to the research as well. So. That right, leads us Mike. To, to you, Mike, and the search, search singularity, whatever that is. <laughs> I was just, I've been, there's a couple of articles that I've been reading in this vein, but uh, Animal Z did this article by Ryan Law called The Search Singularity, How to Win in the Era of Infinite Content, and just points out that tools like OpenAI, GP3, and others write original content. This isn't content. This isn't mildly modified content. This is taking all the things that that these large systems know and writing original content, but typically mediocre content. And currently AI is helping, you know, optimize articles. AI is already identifying gaps in subject matter. AI is already being used to flesh out bullet point outlines and get to the first draft faster. And it's only, and I'm sure it's already being experimented with in terms of content. So the question becomes one is to me, how does a biz, how does anybody deal with this content sort of uh, disgorging? And two, how does 
Google deal with it because this content isn't plagiarized. It's not as easy for them to identify. So assuming that Google can deal with it, they offered up three uh, suggestions from a strategy point of view. One was focus on information gain, i.e. increasing knowledge in a given area, filling information gaps, original surveys, that type of thing. Two, diversifying into authority in different areas. So uh, counter narrative opinions, personal narratives, industry analysis, data storytelling, and then three, possibly sharing information in a unique and unusual way. I mean, these have always been the ways of creating you know, value in this marketplace, but it, depending on how well Google does with it, this could become harder. Although in the end, I think, uh, maybe you said it best, David, creativity prop will win out. Um, but it is an interesting problem that everybody's going to be confronting over the next few years as these tools become more valuable and less expensive to use. Yeah, I, I think the other thing I would say is it, it, it could make it much, it could make it even harder for smaller, less authoritative websites to compete in the SERPs. Because I think if you're, if you're an SEO at an enterprise company with a lot of resources, and a lot of domain authority, you're going to be able to gin up just an unlimited amount of long tail content that will probably rank because of your domain authority. Um, and I, I personally don't think Google's going to be all that good at detecting AI generated content versus personally generated content. So I think if you're a, a smaller company that you might have to go, it, it might be the kind of thing where you you know, before you would have to, you know, before the strategy was to go after all these long tail terms because they were less competitive, and you might have a chance to rank for them. I think moving forward, it might say, actually, we might need to go all in on, you know, three pieces of content a year that are really heavily, uh, you know, research, sort of have a strong, a strong creative or original right. research bias. Um, and then from there, use those as hubs to, to try to build a more long tail strategy. But I think domain authority and AI content uh, is probably the, the, the future of SEO for a lot of uh, a lot of industries. I, I I agree with that analysis about the long tail. I mean, I think this is the kind of tool that if it if I mean I haven't seen any of the original AI content that this article refers to, but this is this is a way for a small team to generate a ton of content around very very specific ideas or keywords, really niche content. And so that I, I agree that that the, the danger is that that everybody else will get drowned out. Um, you know, I, I wonder, I mean, I immediately think about the value of, of brand and it's hard to build a brand if you're a small, you know, home services company, right? That's a, that's a big challenge. Um, but the brand becomes even more important in this kind of an environment that gets noisier and noisier. And then also, does it push people to other channels to, to generate that awareness? You know, TikTok, YouTube. Um, whatever it is, you know, Nextdoor, Yelp, because Google is just going to be this morass of crap or, you know, thin content or it may not be content. It may not be crap. It will be perfunctory, but it may not be crap. I mean, some of these AI products write perfectly readable articles that might actually be informative on a particular topic. So I, I, I think they will all be perfunctory, but I don't know that they're all going to be crap. Depends yeah, on how good so. the input is. And how long tail 
the content is, right? Right, exactly. I mean, some of these things are going to require domain expertise and all of that sort of thing, but... Um, well, you I mean, know, this, this. I, I feel like the, the, in, in home services, for example, what was that site? Um, oh, they got nailed by one of those Panda updates or whatever. Um, Ask. How, 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 how do, how how do I.com or what? How to, right. yeah. How to. All those, yeah, those kinds of things can be very well targeted and very well done with AI, is my guess. But, the, so. but they're, but in that example, that's all pretty thin stuff, you know? It's, right. it's, and that was all thin plagiarized stuff. It wasn't right. original. E or it was, or it was, or it was derivative, or it was right. derivative. Right. Yeah. Right. right. But I, I, so I think that AI is going to do a better job than those, uh, you know, probably third world written eHow articles. And if the if those AI articles are on a domain with enough strength, I think they're going to rank and be useful enough for consumers. I mean, I I, I could envision a lot of first draft efforts, right? Sort of creating a lot of first draft copy. And then you have human editors who go over it and sort of polish it at the margins and, you know, make it, make it slightly less machine-like. I don't know. I had a, I did a video of the spot to be case study and gather up, convert, uh, hired a, a ghostwriter to write it up. And it was endless hours bringing it back to a level of of mine and Aaron's time to bring it back to a level of sophistication that I felt it needed. And so even with a human writing from a video, they could not create the nuance or detail that I thought was important in a written version of this video. And it took us hours and hours. So is this, is this an argument, a pro machine argument? It's a pro human argument. Really? Well, that but Mike, that's, it takes I guess more that's... than a few minutes around the edges is what I'm saying. That's an example of a piece, though, that you guys spent substantial time on that, right, that required exactly. and, and exhibited a ton of creativity and hopefully led to some real visibility for GatherUp. So right, but that's I'm exactly the about, kind of content that will win even with machines. But Greg said that you could get it to start the article and then you could fix it up around the edges. And I, I don't think that a real article can do that, right? a thoughtful article. I think that, like David said, it's, it's perfunctory. Well, I mean, I know that if you, it, just in my experience, if you create a bad first draft, it's really hard to fix that. You you almost have to reinvent the piece. You yes. Know? Well, that's true. So. That's very true. But it does hold a place of possibility for the three of us. Well, it's, it, it's it, very it, interesting. It's very interesting to think about. I mean, I, I have not experienced it. I've only read about it. So, you know, I mean. Well, I was reading and, some. And we should say all, 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 uh, Near media newsletters are actually written by Greg. They are not just remixed AI from articles that Mike and I share. I, I hope it doesn't feel like they're uh, remixed AI. Yeah, I, I just, spent I, I spent a lot of time looking at stuff and writing stuff. So, yeah. Well, there you Hope, go. So, hopefully, if you, you want original that. creative content. Sign up for our newsletter. Yeah, I wonder was, if we I, should. I, I, I wonder if we should run a test though, Mike, where we have one <laughs> newsletter go out that is AI that see if people notice. <laughs> people won't know. People won't know. People people scan. You know they don't they don't read they scan. So yeah. that's right. All, All right. right. Well, that seems like a positive enough note to end on, despite it not being as worthy a goal as it is for yes. it, for for others as it is for me. But it seems like a good place to to stop for this week. Yes. Um, as always, we love to hear from you, um, things you want to say to us, ways we can help, help you more with our content and 
Uh, thanks for listening. We will see you next week. Be safe out there. Thanks for joining David, Mike, and Greg. To stay on top of the latest developments in local, subscribe to our newsletter at nearmedia.co. We'll see you next week.